Real quick, I gotta let you in on a testing secret. With regulations and breaches on the rise, production data is no longer safe or legal for developers to use. And creating test data in-house is a complex chore that eats away valuable time. That's where Tonic comes in. They make it possible to create a true mirror of production by safely and realistically mimicking production data. So you can work on real product and steer clear of surprises at release time. Learn more at tonic.ai slash code story. I was watching a mountain bike video on YouTube one day and I thought to myself, I would really like to play this trail that the guy was riding as a video game. It was kind of natural for me to ask myself, I wonder if I could figure out a way to make that game. I always kind of think about how little kids now, they touch television screens and they expect everything to be a touch screen. And so in my mind, everyone is now expecting a video clip to somehow be interactive, to somehow feel like it's a game. And I think that Overplay is going to usher this in. I'm Dan Perjanski. I'm Caroline Stauka. And we're the co-founders of Overplay. This is Code Story, a podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries. It's six months moonlighting. There's nothing on the back end. Who share what it takes to change an industry. I don't exactly know what to do next. took many goes to get right. Who built the teams that have their back. Our company is its people. The teams help each other achieve. Most proud of our team. Keeping scalability top of mind. All that infrastructure was a Yes, we've been fighting it as we grow. Total waste of time. The stories you don't read in the headlines. It's not an easy thing to achieve, Mike. Took it off the shelf and dusted it off and tried to begin. To ride the ups and downs of the startup life. You need to really it's want it. not just about technology. All this and more on Code Story. I'm your host, Noah Laphart. And today, how Dan Prajansky and Caroline Strelka created a way to take your videos and transform that video into a game. This episode is supported by Terso. Terso is the open source edge database from the creators of LibSQL. Do you put your edge computing close to your users? You should put your data there too. Terso makes this easy utilizing the developer experience of SQLite. Access a free starter plan at terso.tech slash codestory. Terso, welcome to the data edge. This episode is brought to you by our friends at MemberStack. MemberStack is the fastest way for you to launch a beautiful Webflow MVP with robust authentication and smooth payments integration. Join companies like Slack and American Airlines in serving millions of members every single day. Get started for free by visiting memberstack.com slash codestory. Caroline Strelka is a Philadelphia native, born and raised. She is a first-generation American and is grateful to be in a place to be running her own company. Her parents are from Argentina, with a Polish heritage, so she pointed out that they speak a lot of languages in her home. Outside of tech, she loves to hike and be in the trees, and she calls herself the MacGyver of the kitchen, meaning she can take anything from the fridge and make a stellar meal out of it. Dan Perjanski is a country boy, only moving to New York City when he was 11 years old. He's a father of a 14-year-old child and is an avid mountain biker and motorcyclist. In fact, he has owned over 50 different motorcycles across different brands over the years. Originally, he attended school for film, but after working at Sesame Street, he started to work in computers and development. And that is where he met Caroline. One day, Dan was watching some videos online. 
He had a thought, a desire, a want to play the video like it was a game. And eventually, this idea turned into a business, which he started with his co-founder, Caroline. This is the creation story of Overplay. I'm an avid mountain biker, and I was watching a mountain bike video on YouTube one day, and I thought to myself, I would really like to play this trail that the guy was riding as a video game. Been making video games for a long time, so it was kind of natural for me to ask myself, "I wonder if I could figure out a way to make that game." And I did, and and that's kind of the genesis of Overplay. But pretty quickly, I realized, well, it's one thing if I can make the video into a video game. I mean, I've been making video games for my whole career. How can I make it so that the guy who made the video I was watching could make his video into a video game, and and so came up with a solution for that, and that's the second part of what Overplay is, and that's really the part that we're so excited about, because what it means is that anyone who can make a video can now add an interactive gaming layer to it to make it into a video game. So, Dan and I. Have actually known each other now for about 16 years, and we worked together for about seven years at Sesame Street. And I used to run digital media business development at Sesame, so we would do all this kind of cutting edge new technology stuff. Sesame is a nonprofit, but we all had all these technology companies that wanted to work with us, like Qualcomm and Intel, and Apple and Google and all of those folks. And so we'd get approached to do really cool product with them. And so I would work hand in hand with Dan and his team. Dan ran the interactive production group at Sesame, and we would make all this really cool product together. So that's how we got to know each other. We're a bit yin and yang,、um, so I'm kind of like the ex-investment banker, digital, you know, business development person, and the kind of business strategy and 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 that kind of person. And Dan is kind of like I always describe him as like the mad scientist. <laughs> In the best way, in the best way, and really the most brilliant person in the room. And so it's really just such a dream to be able to work together and in, in building Overplay together. But we did meet at Sesame Street, which is I know not the normal technology. How did you build your company? Story. <laughs> Let's dive into the MVP then. So tell me about the first version of the product that was built. You know what sort of. Tools were used to bring it to life, and how long it took to to stand it up. So the very very first version of the product was built by me and one other developer. It was for iOS only, and it was so rough. I was working part time. I, I was continuing my consulting business and、uh, working on other projects. So I was definitely finding just time to do it and fill it in on weekends and in evenings. And the developer I was working with was also working on other projects as well. So we spent about six months before we had、um, the first playable version. We went from there, and then from the beginning, I always thought it was really important that we had an Android version as well as iOS. iOS tends to be, you know, for the richer, richer countries and richer folks, and I really wanted it to be broader than that. 
After that, we needed another developer to do the Android version. So together, it was a, a team of three when we released the original product. And as I said, because we were working part-time on it, I think it was almost a year before the original product was released into the App Store. And we realized pretty quickly that there were quite a few things that needed to be improved. So we've been working pretty continuously on it, trying improving it and making it better, uh, launching our maker component right on the app for the, you know, for the past year or so. Dan was really able to show the MVP to even to patent lawyers and, and folks who would help us out on the business side to get patent around this. And so it was very important that we build something in order to get it patented properly. And so he really pulled this from the beginning. With with any MVP, you've got to make certain decisions and trade-offs around how you build it, technical debt, um, you know, feature limitation, all that stuff. And, and you're alluding to them at a high level, but maybe give me, work, work through one or two with me about some of those decisions and trade-offs you had to make and how you coped with those decisions. I mean, I think the biggest trade-off was around the fact that once we got underway, it became clear that certain types of game authoring really required a second screen. Because of the need for a second screen, we kind of had to go back to the drawing board a little bit and do an additional amount of development work. Currently, you can author your games directly on your device or with a second screen. And the reason a second screen is needed is that the inputs that you're doing actually move your phone. So if you're doing a motion input such as pitch or roll, your phone is moving so much that it's impossible to see your video in order to author the game to the level of quality that you would want. So we needed a second screen so you could watch the video in one place and use your phone as a remote. So I think that in this case, we put an MVP out that didn't work that way. And we became aware that it was kind of missing this fundamental feature. So we had to go back. So I guess what we did was extend the MVP's timeline, if you like. I know that this is always one of the most difficult questions. When is it right to release your MVP. I mentioned Kaizen before, and it's kind of my overarching philosophy. So we released before we were ready in this fundamental way of not being able to author using a second screen, but we just continually have tried to improve the product and improve the product and improve the product. Go back to the original question of what got left behind for the MVP. There have been so many things. I mentioned the uh, need for a second screen. We didn't leave that behind because it really wasn't possible. But I think there were multiple input types that were originally envisioned for the MVP that had to be left behind. For example, one of the main game inputs is tap. You know, you tap your screen. And of course, the original game engine had positional tap where you might tap something specifically in the video as it moved around. I mean, this is a pretty basic gameplay structure. It became clear that knowing exactly what position the video is displayed at on the multitude of different screen aspect ratios and resolution was going to cause a significant amount of work. And instead, we decided to put it aside. I'm happy to say that we're currently working on putting it back in, but this is a, a year later. It shouldn't be too much longer, so we will get it eventually. But that's an example of something that we had to put aside when it was time to release the MVP. 
This episode is encrypted by Cypherstash. Data breaches are becoming a fact of life. Know why? One of the reasons is because developers lack the right tooling to get the job done, i.e. encryption at rest tools are complex and inadequate. The solution? Encryption in use with Cypherstash. Cypherstash uses searchable encryption in use technology, providing continuous and universal protection for sensitive data. With Cypherstash, you can turn your existing database into a vault, utilizing zero-trust key management, SQL native, and with no code. Though encryption is complicated, Cypherstash is easy to use. The tool fully supports SQL via a drop-in driver replacement, supporting the query types you know and love today. And did we mention it's fast? For queries over 100 million records, you can expect additional overhead of less than one millisecond. It's a no-brainer. Get started by reviewing their docs or downloading sample projects in Rails or Node plus SQLize today. Visit cypherstash.com slash codestory and get started protecting your data. This episode is supported by Treble. This day and age, APIs are a fact of life. And as such, product and engineering teams need tooling that is lightweight, real-time, and data-rich to help them ship and maintain APIs faster. That's where Treble comes in. Treble is an all-in-one platform for the entire API lifecycle. The product offers world-class monitoring and observability, providing more than 40 data points for each request, enabling you to understand everything from performance to user behavior. Dashboards help connecting your entire team for lifecycle collaboration. Documentation is automatically generated, saving massive amounts of time for your development team with every new release. And setting up Treble, super easy and fast. In three simple steps, you can be up and running with their platform. Their pricing is designed to support API teams of all sizes. So get started with Treble today and automate your API ops. Did I mention they have a free forever plan? Find out more by visiting treble.com slash codestory. That's T-R-B-L-L-E dot com slash codestory. So then you have the MVP, it's working, you're learning a ton. How did you go about progressing and maturing the product? And I think what to wrap that in a box a little bit, what I'm looking for is how did you go about building your roadmap? And how do you go about deciding, okay, this is the next most important thing to build or to address with overplay? After Dan built the MVP and we had the patent granted, that's really when I joined the company and I got right to work in raising our first round of pre-seed funding. So that way we could bring on a team that could start hitting on the the roadmap that Dan and I uh, kind of put together a little bit. And so we raised one and a half million dollars as a pre-seed in 2021 from some angels. And then we also had a couple of great pre-seed funds like Village Global uh, join with us early on, some early believers. And from that, we were able to bring on mostly developers, uh, iOS, Android, and full stack devs, and start addressing the roadmap, which Dan could talk about a little bit more in detail, but really um, to start to move the product from an MVP to an alpha. Question of roadmap is always a question of balancing. You have how many resources an individual feature will take. Once you start to collect research and user feedback, obviously that's a huge driver of what should be on the roadmap. You have the ultimate need to monetize, that's a huge driver. And then you have your original vision, and how much you want to stick with what you originally thought and how much you want to pivot. So all of those things are balanced together. For us, 
we know that we won't exist if we don't tell the story of how it is, where we're going in terms of monetization and how it is we intend to make money with this. The money to build the product comes from folks who want to invest in us and want to make money. Caroline and I want to make money with the product. So that's a super important part. And we're always thinking about how each and everything that we do kind of supports that the other thing is that you you're always balancing kind of feedback from users against what you originally envisioned. It seems in kind of current discussions of startups, often user feedback is given in a far more prominent place. The expectation and understanding is that users know what they want and you should listen to them and then build it and then you'll have a successful product. I do think that if you listen only to user feedback, you miss the opportunity for big advancements and leaps. It's not a question of your users not being clever or creative enough. It's just that they aren't necessarily thinking about that. The bigger jumps are things that perhaps you in your unique position came up with or imagined in a fitful night of sleep. Whatever it is, you do still need to balance where you want to go. Those jumps that you want to make forward they can be prompted or sparked by user feedback, but a lot of times that's something that you need to continue to make sure is part of the roadmap. Let's switch to team then. So how do you go about building your team? And and what do you look for in those people to indicate that they are the winning horses to join you? We actually have a term for the kind of person that we, we look for in the team. And this actually came through our UI UX designer. We were talking about this very thing one day as we were gonna start to hire more people to join the team because we really needed developers who were not just good coders. We needed people who would really think outside the box, truly, truly outside the box. So our UI UX designer, Luis, he's like, ah, you know, you just kind of need a person who would understand what it's like to eat a mandarin in the shower. And we were like, what are you talking about? And he's like, you know, you have this peeled mandarin and you just bring it in the shower with you. You just bite it as you're letting the water flow over you. And it feels like you're kind of being washed with orange juice. (laughs) And we we were like, Luis, we know we hired the right person, (laughs) you know, as we're talking to you. But it's become kind of like this internal check mark that we put against a person as we're interviewing them? Are they a mandarins in the shower kind of person? Would they they be wacky enough and creative enough to do something like this that will make themselves think differently and give them new insight and thus bringing that into the product and then into our end consumer? So mandarins in the shower. (laughs) The mandarins in the shower is definitely true. Anyone who will go to that extent to just experience, you know, the extra juiciness you get from eating it in the shower as someone that I'm interested in talking to. Perhaps not hiring every time, but definitely interested in talking to. I've worked with a a ton of folks throughout my career all over the world, domestic teams, international teams. You know, before I was building Overplay, I was building, as Caroline referenced, I was building a bunch of software at Sesame Street. And we had internal teams, we had external teams, we worked with, you know, full service companies, teeny little companies and everything like that. 
So I have a ton of experience and you know, the thing that I really have to say is that there is no one rule. You know, the folks that I've really enjoyed working with have come from all over. There is no one rule. You really have to put work in when you're trying to build a team. You have to talk to folks. You have to really try and get a sense of them. You have to, you know, pay attention to their experience, but also pay attention to what they say. And then the reality is once you hire someone, it's not a guarantee that they're going to work out. I think, you know, every hire decision is a risk. And I think it's understood that startups often can make one of two mistakes. They can spend too long trying to find the perfect person, or they can spend too long sticking with someone who isn't the perfect person. I hold with with both of those things. I think you talk to a reasonable number of people, you find the person that you think will be the best fit, you need to make sure there'll be a cultural fit as well as have the experience and skills you need. And then if it doesn't work out, then you have to move on and, and let them go. So far, we've been pretty successful. We have some super strong developers and UI UX person that Caroline mentioned is Luis is fantastic. So I feel really good about the team. I feel really good about what we built, but we definitely have have let some people go already. This episode was automatically optimized by Cast. If you run cloud native software on AWS, Google Cloud, or Azure, you know how out of hand the bill can get. This uncertainty hurts your business, but you can solve it with Cast AI. Cast AI automates cloud cost, performance, and security management for hundreds of companies of all sizes. The platform's customers begin saving immediately and cut an average of over 60%. So before you go and sign a multi-year contract with a cloud provider or lay people off, check out what Cast AI can do for you. To get you saving even faster, CastAI is offering a free cloud cost audit with a personal consultation. Visit cast.ai slash codestory to get started. This episode is supported by Terso. Terso is the open source edge database from the creators of LibSQL, the popular fork of SQLite. If you put your edge computing close to your users, like with Netlify or Vassell edge functions or Cloudflare workers, you should put your data there too in order to maximize performance gains at the edge. Terso makes it easy. With a developer experience of SQLite and a distributed database, you can replicate much closer to your users than traditional database offerings in the cloud. Terso's lightweight, easy to use, and free to get started. The team at Terso is offering a generous starter plan specifically for CodeStory listeners. Head over to terso.tech slash CodeStory and get started today. That's T-U-R-S-O dot tech slash code store. Terso, welcome to the data edge. Let's flip to scalability then. So, and this will be interesting given the product that you're making. I'm curious if you built this in the beginning with scale in mind, or is this something you're having to fight as you grow? So we did build it from the very beginning with scaling in mind, but I think that there's a difference between my experience with scaling, which was pretty removed, and even some of the developers' real-time experience with scaling. More recently, we brought on someone to kind of go through our code and make sure that we're in a good position to scale the way we expect to. And so far, so good. A lot of the traditional technical scaling challenges are behind us because 
the industry is in a position where you know you can you can kind of putter along at a few users and then scale to a million users without too much technical trouble. I think we do have some areas, especially with uh, game approval and making sure that the content that's being uploaded is acceptable to be on our platform, where we still have scaling issues ahead. I'm really proud of what we've been able to do in terms of raising the money that we had and being able to hire a team internationally because talent is everywhere. So we were able to be very conservative with our spend. So I'm, I'm really happy that we were able to make these changes and you know bring on the, the, the team that we need to to be able to build up to where we are right now and not spend a boatload of money. Um, and so we've actually matched the, the fundraising to the roadmap that we needed and brought on the people that we needed. As we kind of scale internally in terms of internal team, we're, we're matching this to now the next round of funding and we've been able to be pretty conservative and hire a really awesome international team so far. Dan and I are actually the only two Americans. Uh, we're a totally remote company and that has g- given us the flexibility to really put time and, and money into the product in developing this from, from the start. So I think that there's a scaling in terms of what the technological capacity of the product, but then there's also the scaling of the internal workforce and, and you know what we've been able to do. As you step out on the balcony, both of you, you look across all that you have built, what are you most proud of? You know, it's always so amazing to actually be able to just launch the app and it actually works <laughs> it's like and it it's one of these things where you're like wow this is live and it's doing what we said it was going to do which is always such a cool thing where you know you say you're going to build x y and z and really until you have it in hand and you're actually are playing with it yourself you almost don't believe that it's possible. It's it's almost like, I'm not saying that this is like a God complex or anything like that. In a way, it's kind of like, wow, we made something that's never been made before. And this is revolutionary. And so it's kind of putting the product behind the words, everything that you've been talking about to your friends and family and investors for so long. And here it is, right? And so that is just such a gratifying thing to actually be playing with something that you made, that you envision and you've been talking about for so long. Personally, that's very fulfilling. And then I will also say another thing that's been really fulfilling too is both seeing mine and Dan's growth as leaders, as people, as kind of risk takers, kind of holding hands and jumping off a cliff together. That's a source of pride because what we're doing is very, very hard. I, I think it's our growth as as founders and as leaders that's also something that I'm personally very proud of as well. Well, I really have to second everything that Caroline said. I think in addition to that, I really am proud of the team. As Caroline said, we're remote. Every day when we get on, on calls and I see how many people there are who I genuinely like and impressed by their abilities, who are working on overplay. It's something I'm really, truly proud of. Let's flip the script a little bit. 
tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. Millions and millions and millions of them every day. You know, it goes back to something I I was saying before about trying to balance for the roadmap. Uh, Whenever it comes to features, I'm always really trying to figure out who the right voices are to, to do input on what a feature is. And, you know, we have a head of games and our head of UX and then myself are, are pretty much responsible for the design. But then we have quite a bit of feedback from our users and from our researcher. I think a big mistake that was made, at least on my part, was not being able to recognize when something that the three of us designed and were very excited about, or even something just that I thought was a really great idea, is just not resonating with users. You know, despite the fact that it's easy to say, oh, of course, the product is for your users, and so if something isn't resonating with them, then it needs to be removed, it's easy to kind of get involved with thinking that something is right and you just need to explain it better to them. So I would say that a mistake that I've made, I wish I could say only once, but probably more than once, is taking a little bit longer than ideal to understand that an idea that I or my team and I thought was good is just not what users wanted. It can often be very difficult for entrepreneurs because they're told no so often that they become very used to saying, well, you say no, but I say yes, and I'm going to do what I say because you literally have to. There's no way that you can build a a company, especially when you're trying to do something new. If you're going to let someone tell you, oh, that isn't going to work or no, that's a terrible idea. If you let people say no to you, you know, you're never going to be able to build something because unfortunately, there's always someone saying no. I think it really becomes interesting when you get to the point where you have to listen to those no's from your users. It's not always so easy to know where the line is. Then you've made a mistake and you need to pivot. (laughs) If I pivoted every time an investor told me that this is what you need to do, we would be nowhere. We would be pivoting every two two minutes. I think it's really an interesting uh, question about when do you listen and when do you just work with what you believe. That's really been one of the biggest learning and growing uh, parts for me, becoming both an entrepreneur and a CEO, knowing when is the right time to pivot, when is the right time to leave something behind that I believed in, and then knowing when is the right time to say, no, I don't care that everyone says no, this is what we're doing. It's really an interesting question. I think it's a question that hits everybody who's trying to build something like this. This will be really fun for the audience. And I I love asking this question and I love hearing founders get excited. What does the future look like for the product and for your team? Dan and I have huge dreams and goals for Overplay. We really do think everyone is going to be seeing a video in the future and they're going to think it's interactive or they think it should be interactive. I always kind of think about how little kids now, they touch television screens and they they expect everything to be a touch screen. And so in my mind, everyone is now expecting a video clip to somehow be interactive, to somehow feel like it's a game. And I think that Overplay is going to usher this in because of our technology, 
and the various partnerships that we could have from regular people now being able to make games to brands now easily being able to make games. There should be this interactive part that gets people really thinking, gets people rewarded. And so, yeah, we do believe that overplay is going to be ubiquitous. We think it's going to be everywhere. It's going to be on all sorts of platforms. It's not just going to be on our own app. And then we also have this big idea around having interactive games on top of live events. So imagine a Formula One race. You are transported into individual cars and you're seeing exactly what the driver is seeing from the car that you're choosing at this very moment and you're racing along with them through overplay. And so there's this now this huge opportunity, we think, for sports for concerts, for live events, where there's a gamification layer on top of that event. And it almost feels like you're there, but it's using Overplay's technology and telemetry data. Overplay paired with other data could really take interactive experiences really far. And it's cool because it's all built on something that humans are doing. We're not handing it over to machines. You know, it's, it's really truly the pairing of active things that humans are doing with technology on top to make it even better. So humans are not sitting back. Humans are actively doing something, but now it's enhancing it with our technology. To put it kind of simply, user-generated content is basically what the internet is built. I mean, we're on a podcast now. This is essentially radio broadcast by anyone who wants to take the time to learn. So we have podcasts for what was radio. We have Instagram for photos, YouTube for video, TikTok for short form video, etc. Pretty much every type of media has user-generated content platform that is ubiquitous, that everyone knows of and is using, except for video games. I've been making video games a long time. I know how complicated they are to make, and I understand why that really hasn't come to pass. It's not for the lack of trying. There have been so many different methodologies that have been created to make games easy and simply. I think Overplay is really unique in that it combines the existing knowledge of how to make video and the fact that everyone already has a video recorder in their pocket combines those two facts, adds a layer of interactivity, and allows anyone to make a game. I I think that means it's going to be huge. Let's flip to you both individually. So who influences the way that you work? Name a person or many persons or something that you look up to and why. You know, the first thing that usually comes to mind is like, you know, you, you think about like work-life balance and I was like, who's got that? And I, I can't even point to anyone who, who has that really. It's folks who are more, I guess, on the creator side who are building something that where they feel like they as an individual are creating something to society. They're putting music out there or they're putting art out there, you know, paintings, whatever it might be, because they are really having the confidence in themselves to pick up that paintbrush or that guitar and create something that maybe hasn't been done before, but it really 
you know, even just to pick it up and have the confidence that even you could screw it up, it, it doesn't matter. <laughs> like, but a lot of people don't even pick up that paintbrush because they think, oh, I can't paint, I, I can't play this guitar. But the people who actually do have the confidence in themselves to actually do it and to make something, I think I find really inspirational. And so when I'm feeling too stressed out or down in the dumps or whatever it is that it might be, whatever entrepreneurs feel, which is a lot of emotion on a daily basis, I like to go to the museum because then I could see stuff that other people have made and that other people have recognized as something valuable. And it really helps me kind of connect with humanity in a larger way and give me the confidence to also be able to continue going and maybe make something that hasn't been done before. Well, it's got to start with my mom. She was kind of a groundbreaking psychologist in New York in the Hudson Valley when I was a kid, but she was incredibly hardworking. She really pursued a career in what she wanted to do. And once she found something that she wanted to do, she worked incredibly hard at it for her entire career. Um, and I really, I think it all starts from there. But there have been a few other people over the course of my career that I've really respected. One of them is uh, one of my best friends from high school. His name is Dave Krasnow. He originally was working as an editor in the publishing business, and he decided that he really wanted to do something new and different. And he decided that he wanted to go into radio. Now, that's a really difficult thing to get into, especially if you didn't have any formal training in undergraduate. But he went out and he took a class on Pro Tools and editing suite. I don't even know if they use it anymore. He taught himself to do it. He taught himself to be able to put stories together. And he got a job at NPR on a radio show. And then when the podcasting revolution took off and exploded, he was perfectly positioned for it. But I've always admired his courage he decided what he wanted and he decided to pursue it and he buckled down and he did it. I would be remiss if I don't mention Karen Fowler. She was the creative director uh, and executive producer of The Electric Company and we worked together at Sesame Street. After the television show was completed, I worked with her on uh, interactive games and website stuff. And she had recently had an, a kid, and we were having a conversation about risk-taking. And now that we were parents, I too was a new parent at that time, we were talking about risk-taking and being parents. And she had a really interesting take that has stuck with me ever since. She said, in some ways, I feel drawn towards taking less risks, but when I think about my daughter watching me and looking at me and what I'm doing, I know that what I should be doing is pursuing what I want to do, what my dreams are. And that really resonated with me. And that was a lot of when I decided I really was going to become an entrepreneur because I didn't want my kid growing up feeling like I'd made some decision to continue doing a job that perhaps I didn't really care for that much in order to keep the family afloat. It felt more important to me that my kids see me pursuing my dreams, even if those dreams ultimately don't work out. It's still a better path in my mind. It's still what I would like my kid to see me doing. Last question. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. Can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? 
I constantly think about the advice that I received when I first started down the road that I kind of dismissed or I didn't understand the implications of. You know, people would constantly say, oh, you better love what you're doing because you're going to be doing it for a long time. And I didn't really understand how important that was until I was doing it for a long time. I think it's really hard to tell someone who hasn't started what it's going to be like, but you better love it because it's going to be a really, really long time. And no matter how hard you think it's going to be to do, it's going to be harder. But is that helpful? I don't know. I'm, I don't think it is helpful, but it is true. I'd be very excited for them. I was just thinking back to this weekend because, and actually this morning, because I actually do mentor a lot of people starting up their companies. Even this morning, I was reviewing a deck, especially female entrepreneurs, because there's not enough of us out there. And then what I usually do is I try to give the whole download of larger learnings. And one of the big learnings is, is along the lines of what Dan said, takes three times more time and often three times more money than you think it will to actually make what you want to make. Be ready to do that. Be ready to steal up the inside of yourself because you will have a lot of people that will tell you no or won't believe in you. And sometimes in your life, these will be friends and family who think you're taking too big of a risk. And frankly, people might fall out of your life because of what you're building. So, you know, just know that you're not alone in, in that, what you're experiencing, but there's not everybody has the risk appetite that you might have. Some important people in your life might actually fall away. And it might seem sad, but at the end of the day, if you feel in your gut that you are an entrepreneur, and this is something that you really do have to feel, that you need to make something and put it out into the world then that is what you should be doing. And then you just get your tribe around you of people who will support you in your journey. And then of course, there is the nuts and bolts of it all, like get a good deck together. And as you speak with investors, you know, just talk to them like humans and, and you know, really believe in what you're building. So that way that that's conveyed in, in a way that they see your passion and that you can talk about it for 10 hours a day, which is <laughs> what I'm doing as we're fundraising. You really have to believe in what you're building and, and be able to stay with it for a long time. Speaking as a woman, as hard as this is also for me to say, but you got to be so spot on and polished. You have to almost like outperform the guys by like an additional 50%. I'm often in a room where I'm the only woman, and it's it's a very weird thing, but you have to kind of be ready for that. Well, Dan, Caroline, thank you for being on the show today, and thank you for telling the creation story of Overplay. Thanks. Thanks so much for having us. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening.
Save big money on plant protection supplies. Now at Menards. Defend your garden with Triazicide Insect Killer. Its fast-acting formula protects lawns, vegetables, and many other plants. It kills more than 260 insects by contact, above and below ground. Choose from ready-to-spray, concentrate, or granular. Save big money on Triazicide Insect Killer at Menards. And check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big- 